Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tractable Podcast. I'm Shatej, co-founder and CTO here at Orb. Uh, today I have with me Richie. Richie is the co-founder at Warpstream. Um, Warpstream is a Kafka-compatible data streaming platform, um, and Warpstream is doing a ton of cool stuff uh, on top of S3. And Richie has worked at uh, Datadog and Uber before, working on lots of big data streaming problems. So really excited to have Richie. Richie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. Really excited to be here. Awesome. Well, let's let's just start a little bit with your background and what inspired you to start Warpstream. As I just said, um, you've clearly worked in parts of this technology at, at previous companies. So g- give me a little bit of that play-by-play and how, how you've thought about this problem, perhaps, in previous roles in your career. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been working in distributed storage for most of my professional career at this point. Uh, so like nine years or something. Um, kind of got started almost all focused in the observability space too. Um, so I kind of got started in storage at Uber working on, um, you know, when Uber was going through their kind of like hyper growth phase, they had a bunch of internal um, observability technology. I mean, they, they still do. Um, and there was an internal metrics platform called M3 uh, that I worked on. Um, that technology, um, you know, it was open source and eventually uh, became the company that is Chronosphere. And so they have a they have a distributed open source time series metrics engine and distributed time series aggregation thing, um, and so I worked on that for for about three years, um, you know, mostly on the kind of guts and internals of the database. Um, that was a really different system than Warpstream too. That was very much like a, um, you know, it does all the replication itself. It interacts with raw disks, um, kind of like classic um, distributed system. Interestingly enough, when we were at Uber. Um, the observability teams actually couldn't like afford to use Kafka. Like the whole company mm. used Kafka, um, but it just like the amount of data we were pumping through, um, we just like wasn't cost effective. And so, mm. um, at least at the time, the M3 team created this thing called M3 Message, which is kind of like you can think of like just the in-memory part of Kafka. You know, if right. the buffers fill up because there's too much back pressure, then you have to drop metrics, and that's that's life. Um, yeah. So that was kind of like my first kind of encounter with streaming for these kind of like big data systems. After that, my co-founder and I, Ryan, we met at a conference actually while I was still working at Uber. Um, And uh, Ryan's like a big kind of distributed systems nerd. He reads all the papers and knows all the, you know, can explain the exact nuances between Paxos and Raft and and all that type of stuff. At the time, tried to convince me that we should either build um, a logging database on top of object storage or we should build mm-hmm. Kafka on top of object storage just like five years ago. Um, mm. And I was like, Kafka object storage, who cares? That sounds so boring. We don't even use Kafka for our metrics. It's fine. Uh, yeah. Let's do logging. You know, that sounds cool. Um, and so we built, you know, like a prototype uh, of a system and that system eventually became um, a system called Husky at Datadog, which is essentially um, the kind of columnar store that powers mm-hmm. most of Datadog's storage products. Um, mm-hmm. Everything that's not metrics basically goes into Husky logs, network events, um, profiling, APM, all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. and it's basically a giant, you know, you can think like Snowflake, but for observability data or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Kind of very similar architecture to Warpstream, you know, fully stateless, separation of data uh, or compute and storage and, and, and all that type of stuff. And what was interesting at Datadog, as I learned, was like they, you know, they use Kafka for everything. Um, right. There's tons, you know, tons of Kafka pipelines that they do for processing and stuff like that. Um, and what I learned it was like how nice it is to have 
this like really scalable, durable buffer, you know, if you can yeah. afford to use it. And it just made developing Husky so much easier because it's the static buffer that doesn't change too often. So you can kind of change all the software around it. If you mess up yeah. anything too bad, you can replay from Kafka, right? If you even think yeah. about doing the migration, I mean, you know, we had the old system reading from Kafka and Husky reading from Kafka. They both read the same data. You shadow yeah. queries and it's, it's, it's really straightforward. And you didn't have to worry that like, you know, if we had a buggy early build of Husky that would somehow impact the, surf, the service that was powering all the real-time stuff. Exactly. Was. Great. Yeah. Um, so super nice. And then we kind of finished migrating everything to Husky, the new system, saved tons of money, um, much smoother operations, stateless, you know, it was great. Uh, and then when we were done, we were like, man, these Kafka pipelines are actually starting to feel really <laughs> annoying compared yeah. to Husky. Because, uh, you know, we'd have some customer notify us that like, hey, you know, we're having this event tomorrow. We're going to 10x in traffic or whatever. Uh, yeah. And we'd be like, on the Husky team, we're like, we don't care. Like, it'll, it'll auto-scale. Um, yeah. But then, like, someone would have to go and manually scale the Kafka clusters. And once you scale yeah. them back up, someone would have to remember to scale them back down. And scaling down Kafka is not, like, a trivial thing to do. Um, yeah. You had to make sure everything was triply replicated. And if, you know, if you had leader, you know, top leader election problems and Zookeeper and all these things, right? Yeah. Um, we're just like, this doesn't make sense. Well, one thing that's, that's interesting about both those experiences is, it, is that I think in order to get to the inspiration point for Warpstream, you really had to work on real problems at scale. Like, like, do you think that's true? Do you think it would have been hard to even dream up the idea of like, oh, let's let's build Kafka on object storage if you hadn't seen uh, organizations at the scale of Uber and Datadog really run into the, the kind of economic problems? Because, uh, you know, that, that, that's not an experience that, a ton of folks have coming into their startup, right? Yeah, I, I think that's 100% true. And I think uh, I think that's also kind of why, you know, Ryan and I, I think made such like a good pair also as co-founders because he's like very deep in the weeds on the kind of like cutting edge theoretical what's possible. Can we like do the mapping path? Is this possible? And I had a yeah. lot of that kind of like experience of just like grinding my head against a terrible problem in production and eventually coming yeah. out with like a, really reliable system on the other end. Yeah. And I think the two of us together kind of really allowed us to, to do something that was both, you know, figure out how to operate operationalize what was essentially like a massively new architecture really quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I agree. Cool. And it's, I mean, Kafka is like a kind of also just like, you know, I think I was joking about how like usage-based billing is like such an unsexy problem. Um, <laughs> and like, that's kind of the value in solving it. I think Kafka is kind of similar. It's like this very kind of like enterprisey, yeah. thing you know and like the value is not obvious i think to a lot of people who haven't dealt with like some of these problems at scale but like if you've worked at these problems at scale being able to like afford to use kafka in the middle in your system somewhere is just like this huge you know besides the problems of maybe with the open source version of like cost and operations it just it it gives you all these benefits um yeah. that yeah are probably not obvious at like smaller scale um so so let's talk a little bit about how Warpstream is is built, um, and I have a follow up there around whether the trade offs that you've taken at Warpstream uh, and, and kind of rebuilding Kafka on top of uh, object storage, whether those made sense for Datadog and Uber, and and you know which companies they make sense for. But but maybe first let's just talk about architecturally what is Warpstream, uh, what's what's both the current product and perhaps like how are you thinking about it in the medium long term. Yeah. So. Uh, today, Warpstream is designed to be a like, drop-in replacement for Apache Kafka. Um, so it supports the Apache Kafka protocol. 
Um, you know, if you have an application that works with Kafka, even like a UI admin tool for Kafka, you can connect it to Warpstream and, you know, everything should just work. Um, you might notice a couple quirks, uh, just that we do things a little bit differently, um, but the semantics of your application should be pretty much exactly the same. And the value of that, I think, which is that like, you know, kind of going back to the thing at, at Datadog where we finished migrating everything to Husky, when we were done, we were like, wow, is Kafka operationally really difficult, but also really expensive. Like the thing that yeah. happens when you self-host Apache Kafka and you run it in three AZs um, is that you spend a ton of money on inner zone networking. And so yeah. while Warpstream is designed to be a drop-in replacement, the two things that it does that are kind of novel um, is that it doesn't have any local disks. It uses object storage as the one and only storage in the system, like so yeah. not even tiered. Um, and what that means is we never replicate data across availability zones ourselves, mm. Um, mm. which means you never pay those inner zone networking fees, uh, which can be mm. huge. You know, at, like uh, for something like with Orb, for example, you know, your, people are sending you all these events, you know, at high volumes, the the replication fees can dominate basically the workload. Right. Um, and the right. other is just like the, the stateless nature of it, making it kind of like Husky, just trivially auto scale based on CPU. You can use smaller nodes because you're not over provisioning and just let your auto scaler kind of take care of most things for you. Um, yeah. You know, there's no topic partition leaders. Any agent can write data for any topic or partition. Yeah. Uh, there's no zookeeper. There's no KRAF. There's no embedded RAF yeah. group. Uh, the, state, yeah. the agents are truly these kind of like thick stateless proxies. Um, yeah. And so that's the product today. Where we're going, that's like a, that's a good question. Uh, the thing I always tell the team really, um, I don't like put this on the website because it's not like, good <laughs> positioning uh, in the short term, but like the way we think about ourselves is more like, we think of ourselves as a, a streaming company and a storage company, not like yeah. a Kafka company. Um, yeah. Today, I think the, the the highest value thing we can do for the streaming space and for our customers yeah. is give them something that implements the Kafka protocol and saves them a bunch of money and makes it easier for them to sleep through the night. But you know, longer term, I think there are um, higher level products and abstractions um, that will make a lot of sense to kind of generalize some of the really common pro things that people do in the streaming space um, yeah. and kind of offer those as more kind of tightly knit products that are a little more yeah. you know, vertically integrated. Um, but we'll, yeah. obviously, we'll obviously always offer the Kafka protocol product because it's a really, really useful and scalable infrastructure primitive. Um, yeah. But it's not like our company identity. And, and, and there's a couple of things you said there. One, of course, is the cost savings of the architecture, right? Like the fact that you don't have to do inner AZ replication. But the other thing you touched on is uh, the fact that it is stateless and it's in some sense, uh, in some real way, it's a simpler architecture or it's, it's simpler to reason about. You don't have to think about Zookeeper. Um, which of those problems do you think is uh, the higher order bit? Or when someone adopts Warpstream today, is it like, okay, it's, it's kind of a barbell of if you're a really large company, what you really care about is the fact that it's much cheaper. You don't pay the AZ replication costs. And maybe if you're a smaller team, you, you just want a product that is going to mean you don't get paged and have to reason about, you know, uh, guarantees that, that perhaps you're not familiar with. And so the, the stateless nature helps a lot. Yeah, it's a good question. I, people ask me that a lot too. And I think like the, the like canonical wisdom, right, is that to like supersede an established and kind of well-known product, you're, the new thing has to be like 10 times better. Um, yeah. I think for like critical infrastructure, like Apache Kafka, um, it has to be more than 10 times better. Uh, like if you think yeah. about like how popular people still run, you know, single node RDS Postgres databases today. Right. Right. Because right. it's just like, it's a really good product and it's taken, you know, 30 years before we're even starting to see 
like some of this yeah. new SQL stuff take off and people offering serverless Postgres and stuff. It's just taking that long because it's like, yeah. it's such a critical piece of infrastructure. It's so battle tested. It's so well known. You have to be that much better. Um, yeah. And I think with Warpstream, it's it's that too. It's like, I think if any of the three things we did, if it wasn't, you know, five to 10 times cheaper, um, if it wasn't completely stateless and trivial to operate, and if it yeah. didn't implement the Apache Kafka protocol product, so you can do like a essentially seamless migration. If we hadn't done any one of those three things, I think it would probably have failed. Um, not see. to say that we're like a massive success already, but I think, you know, I I think those three things are like a requirement for something to have a big disruption in this space. Because there's been a lot of other people have built a lot of other message brokers since Apache Kafka yeah. was released. Um, yeah. Tons of them, actually. Um, yeah. And I think... Either they were more complicated than Kafka or they were a little bit simpler, but not that much cheaper, right? No one's going to do a massive yeah. migration for 40% cost savings. Like that sounds exactly. cool, but to a new architecture and I have to learn everything, like it's not enough. Yeah. Right. Stay with Warpstream or, you know, they invite some new protocol, right? That and it's like, well, no, yeah. my application doesn't work. And so with Warpstream, really, I think what tends to happen is like um, the engineers, really what resonates with them is the simplicity and the operations. Like they're like, oh, yeah. yes, like S3, I know that. I like stateless yeah. services. I know how to run those. Like we've got Kubernetes, do that all day. Yeah. Um, yeah. The cost savings tend to be the thing that, that kind of helps them push it through the organization, basically. Mm. Um, yeah. And then also the, you know, they also really like the, the Kafka protocol compatibility because they don't have to rewrite their application. Um, yeah. The the cost savings thing too, though, is interesting, which is that like one thing people I think undervalue about like it's one thing if you take like you know some product that you use that you know you're paying per seed or something and you sell it ten times cheaper, that's one thing. Um, but making core infrastructure five to ten x cheaper means you can do new things, right? It's not just about like reducing your spend. Right, Everyone's right. really focused on that right now. But it means like you can use this technology for things that it was previously cost prohibitive to use. Uh, and so suddenly, you know, that yeah. Uber metrics use case um, or whatever, you know, suddenly it becomes like actually it's more cost effective to send the data through warp yeah. stream than it is to manually send it across availability zones in memory. Right. And so yeah. enabling yeah. the technology to be used in more places, I think that's kind of what I find more exciting. Uh, but, you know, obviously um, being able to tell people, Hey, your existing thing will work today mm -hmm. and be cheaper is really cruel. Yeah. And then, you know, the slope instead of being the slope per byte, instead of being like, this is like this. And now you yeah. can, you can, you can put more data in it. So. Yeah. So, so let me actually ask the architecture question one level deeper, which is, you know, this idea, let's, let's take the Kafka protocol, let's build it on object storage, let's put everything on object storage, not have any tiering. And conceptually, that sounds kind of simple. So, so what's the core insight? Like, why hasn't someone done this before? Why aren't you incurring like a ton of, you know, API request uh, cost in, in, you know, making requests to S3? Is it that, you know, S3's cost model has changed over the last year or two, and then that's the timing bet? Or is it is it that you all have uh, been able to generalize some learnings that, that maybe you had at these previous companies, and these are just non-obvious, uh, you know, technical decisions um, that maybe other companies haven't thought of? It's it's all of those things. I think this idea has been, like, ruminating in, like, my, my co-founder Ryan's, the whole architecture and implementation was his idea, and it's been stewing in his brain for like six years he's just been wanting to do this forever i'll start with like the kind of primary insight i think that we made and this is kind of where uh, people describe our architecture as like aggressive uh which yeah. is that like we just looked at our careers and the workloads we know and all the use cases for kafka and we we're like if you look at like let's say per byte 
maybe not maybe not number of use cases, but like by raw bytes transmitted through systems like Kafka, more than ninety percent of that is not latency sensitive. It's it's latency sensitive in the sense that you want it, things to happen in seconds, but yeah. it's not like this message needs to get from the producer to the consumer in five milliseconds, and I'm willing to pay ten times more and burn an entire 10 person engineering team to accomplish that right it's like yeah yeah hey if the p99 from the producer to consumer was 1.5 seconds would your business function just as well and if it was 10 times cheaper um yeah. you weren't getting paged in the middle of the night like the everyone's trade-off. pretty happy with it they take the trade-off it's funny people are like no i want to use it for this use case because it's great and it's not latency sensitive i have this other use case it's latency sensitive so we can't use it there but like literally while I'm talking to them, they'll talk themselves out of it. They'll be like, ah, 10 times more expensive. Is it that late? Like, like I'll see it happen, you know? <laughs> yeah, and it's, yeah. it's kind of funny. So that was kind of like an aggressive, which was like, you know, we believe that wasn't super clear when we, you know, were pitching investors and talking to potential customers and stuff like that. Because it's like, it's not until you like put stuff out there that you really know. Uh, but that's what we yeah. felt. So that was part of it. The other thing uh, you're talking about, you know, accomplishing it sounds simple. It's this weird kind of knot, right? Where it's like, if you start from first principles, you're like, okay, the, the kind of naive way to do this is like, just make a file every, you know, 250 milliseconds for every topic partition. And like you said, then yeah. you immediately run into this problem of like, okay, now I have two major problems. One is, okay, but I have multiple agents that are producing data yeah. for the same partition. So how do I decide yeah. which of those files is first, um, yeah. right? And then you, it's like, oh, I could have a leader, but now you've introduced leaders, right? And we don't want that. Yeah. Yeah. That's one problem. And then the other thing you're doing, you're like, okay, well, I can just shove a bunch of data for different topic partitions into one file, which is what we did. Yeah. But then once you yeah. do that, you're like, ah, a bunch of stuff falls out of that because like, I can't just like tail the files in object storage mm-hmm. and read a partition mm-hmm. from start to finish. So now you create this like, oh, okay, I need to track metadata. But it's actually a really yeah. big metadata, high volume metadata scenario that you need to solve. Um, yeah. And then you get into that and you're like, okay, how do I solve the high volume metadata scenario and how do I keep things cost effective? And you just have to keep pulling on this thread. Um, yeah. And they're all solvable problems. There's kind of little tricks for each piece. But by making that one trade off, you end up with something completely different. And that's kind of like my, you know, a lot of times people ask me, like, what's the difference between like Warpstream and doesn't Kafka have tiered storage? And I'm like, tiered storage works, but it's like, you're still copying all the data across the zones and you still have to deal with top mm-hmm. leaders and you still have all the problems of Kafka. You're just essentially cutting off the storage problem. Yeah. But yeah. as soon as you get from like, you want to go from like, even if you get it down to like, I'm storing five seconds of data on disk and everything yeah. else gets copied yeah. to S3. Going from five yeah. seconds to zero means you have to throw the whole thing away and start from scratch yeah. because you've just introduced yeah. a bunch of other things that have to be solved. And so it's a combination of things. I think it's being willing to be aggressive on that latency trade-off um, it's basically being able to work through kind of from first principles all of the little problems that that latency trade-off uh, introduces yeah. and the stateless nature. Um, it's kind of hard to commit to making such an aggressive trade-off and being willing to work through those first principles. You know, when we started the company, like Ryan was like, here's the napkin math. It'll yeah. work. And I'm like, that's yeah. cool, but will it work? And he's like, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. And so that's that's hard. And you know, I've had that with every new system I worked on too. I mean, there were periods of time when we were, you know, let's say like a year and a half into Husky before it had really gone to production, but we'd spent a bunch of time on it and we were still dealing with some like major performance problems and stuff. Um, yeah. And we're just like, is this going to work? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, you start it's to it's doubt it's yourself. And uh, yeah. so it's, it's hard. You know? I guess, how long did it take from that napkin math moment of like, 
I'm guessing what you're thinking about is, well, you know, here's what we know about S3 latency, um, you know, on, on the storage class. Here's what we know about network times. And so here's the like end-to-end latency we estimate. Do you have a sense of like how far off you were from where Warpstream is in production today to where that estimate was? And like, have there been step jumps in, okay, like prototype one was 100x what we thought it would be. And then when we like slowly iterated, maybe switched metadata stores, uh, switched the way that you copy data, uh, that something something significantly changed. Yeah. So there's definitely like for sure, if you compare the early prototype to now, like the the first prototype, if you had like a thousand partitions would just like immediately explode, right? <laughs> um, so there's definitely like stuff like that that we fixed. Um, and especially around scalability of the metadata store also making that cost effective so we can offer this really truly multi-tenant serverless scale to zero thing. You know, one thing we considered really early on was using foundation DB as the metadata yeah. store. Um, yeah. and I think if we'd built Warpstream at like Datadog, that's what we would have done because it's there, we know how to yeah. operate it and you can just deploy a foundation DB cluster and cause you're going to have, it's going to power this giant other workload. And so the costs there are minimal, but if you yeah. want to do like. Some customers send half a megabyte per second and some send five gigabytes per second. And you want to give them something that looks kind of single tenant, isn't just a giant shared FTB cluster, you know, where you're going to have all these noisy neighbor problems. That's why we built something custom um, Mm -hmm. is to to deal with that. But going back to the early prototypes, we basically spent the first three months of the company doing nothing, but basically trying to prove that the napkin math was right. (laughs) We actually managed to do a little bit better on end-to-end latency than we thought we would be able to because uh, we were a bit conservative in our estimates. Um, but yeah, like the literally the first three months of the company's life was basically us just trying to prove it would work and, and de-risk things. Um, yeah. The Most of the stuff turned out to work, I think. We ended up did realizing some problems were way harder than we thought they were. The problem that ended up being way more complicated than we thought um, and we didn't anticipate how complex it would be was actually how we would do compaction this be like a whole thing, so I won't get into now, but the way that we do compaction planning for Warpstream is really weird. And it's like basically, a, I think, a relatively novel algorithm for mm. compaction planning that makes sense because of the semantics of like Kafka, but it's not something... If you look at Warpstream, it kind of looks like a traditional LSM on S3, right? Like you make small files right. and we compact them into big files. Um, right. But because of the kind of ordering semantics of Kafka you have to be really precise about which files go together and when. So that was yeah. the part that we ended up spending way more time on than I thought. And we ended up having to kind of like scratch our initial implementation and yeah. redo it. Um, you know, I had yeah. one or two of those existential, like, is this going to work moments and, yeah. and stuff. But so, so, so actually one thing that's interesting about that is if you think about the contract of a system like Kafka, um, you, you could almost say that latency is part of the contract and that's the part of the contract that you've relaxed a little bit, right. In, in order to rebuild, uh, with the same protocol, but clearly you're you're not trying to relax a bunch of other constraints. Um, has that ever been a thought of like, oh, you know, what if we didn't keep the, you know, I don't know, partition order, or what if we didn't keep this this other property? Uh, is is it just that like that would violate how existing applications use Kafka, and so it, it, it's just a non-starter? Or is there something like that where you're like? you know, I don't know, Kafka has this specific item potency or exactly one semantic that we're just not going to support because uh, we don't think most people need that, just like in the way that most people probably don't need the end-to-end latency that they're getting. Yeah, we definitely considered that. I mean, there, there were early designs where we like 
didn't have monotonically increasing UN64 offsets. Uh, you yeah. know, the, the first protocol we actually started with, I guess I didn't explain this, was actually not Kafka, it was Kinesis. So hmm. the Kafka protocol is extremely complex. So we started with Kinesis, which is an HTTP protocol, to prove out yeah. the rest of the semantics of the system. Um, and so we definitely had thoughts about dropping a bunch of uh, some Kafka features, which are particularly um, annoying to implement yeah. in, a, in a stateless architecture. You know, and I think, again, that's another thing. Like, if we had built this at a big company, we would have done it. Like, we would have done the easier thing because who cares? I can rewrite my application or I can write a client wrapper, right? I control yeah. the system end-to-end. And I, you've seen that. Like, Pinterest has a system called, like, MQ, which is essentially, mm-hmm. like, they wrote client wrappers and they upload file to S3 and then push a pointer to it through Kafka. And, you know, yeah. it adds, like, additional zookeepers and it makes the thing more complex. But even at a, at a big company, you can afford that complexity to not have right. to do all the crazy stuff Warpstream does. Um, But I think the more Ryan and I talked to each other and to customers and like looked at the Kafka ecosystem, there's not much you can throw away and still have most applications work. Um, Even like the latency trade-off we made, it's a relaxation, but a lot of people tune their Kafka clients to buffer and batch for a long time anyways, because it reduces costs and performance. And so that was kind of just like, it's like almost like a knob. Um, but exactly. stuff like idempotent producer, even compacted topics, we're like compacted yeah. topics. Who could possibly be using compacted topics? Like our naivety <laughs> coming from from Datadog, because it's like we don't use Kafka as a KV store. But it turns yeah. out like a lot of stuff in the Kafka ecosystem uses Kafka as a KV store. After we started the company, we're like, wow, Kafka Connect, Debezium, Kafka Streams. Yeah. None of this stuff works without connect compacted topics. Yeah, I think we we would have liked to. I just don't think we really had the choice. All the value in this stuff is like, it's cool, the statelessness and blah. But like, if we didn't implement the Kafka protocol, it would be like a cool Mm -hmm. science project, right? The the full support for Kafka protocol compatibility is to me what makes it a business. And it's like that unsexy part of it that makes it, you know, that's what lets you sell it to people and and continue developing it, so. Yeah, and and we've been talking about the, the sort of complexity uh, and even the sort of infrastructure that small teams can afford to reason about or run um, versus large teams who can, you know, do things like spin up a foundation DB cluster. And then obviously they're just working with a different set of trade-offs where they're not building a multi-tenant uh, environment. So so tell me a little bit about, um, and I've, I've heard you talk about this elsewhere, that smaller teams can just build more ambitious products today. Obviously Warpstream, very, very core technical infrastructure is a very ambitious product. Where do you think that leverage is coming from? Is it just the composability of uh, these cloud providers who have built, you know, progressively better primitives? Yeah, I mean, that's what I think. Like the, you know, I think this is a different interview. I'd be talking about AI right now. Um, <laughs> I have I, I have found AI to be supremely unuseful in building infrastructure software. So, but the like, but people sleep on like what you can like. I mean, we have like you know, Terraform modules written by like two people basically that stand up production grade enterprise, whatever infrastructure it creates. I mean, the the way you can program networks in AWS with like a couple lines of Terraform code is like magic, right? Like if you think about what you'd have to do to accomplish that level of sophistication in like a colo or whatever, Um, even with Warpstream, like our entire control plane has, and like, backend like besides essentially um our aurora database for storing like what customers we have there are no yeah. disks anywhere in the entire stack i could go <laughs> wipe every container in our backend and it would make a bunch of people very unhappy but there would be no data loss um you know everything is yeah. built on uh cloud primitives like object storage and, and dynamo db and stuff like that 
And the fact that you can just get those things, pay for them in like a serverless right. manner and get going, it's absolutely crazy. I think it's easy yeah. to in- to u- overuse those things and introduce a ton of complexity. I've talked to some people and it's like, you know, it's like a six person startup and they have like, you know, 40 30 repos. Data and yeah, yeah. And it takes like, there's like 30 microservices. I'm like, wait, wait. Um, and so, I, but I think if you like kind of know what you're doing, you take a couple key dependencies on really battle-tested, scalable, good stuff, um, like object storage, DynamoVDB, application load balancers, that sort of thing. Um, and you try and stay within the confines of those primitives. You can, I mean, you can build really um, crazy stuff. And, and in fact, you all have built two different versions of Orbstream uh, today where there's a kind of bring your own infrastructure. Uh, and, and my understanding is in that model, you're deploying Warpstream on, you know, basically Kubernetes in the customer's VPC. And then there's like a fully serverless uh, hosted by Warpstream model. So let's talk a little bit about what, what are the what are the architecture differences and why choose to build both, um, especially when you all are, you know, still still pretty early, still trying to uh, understand the viability of the, the core offering. So why build both from the get go? Yeah, um, that was actually a really tough call. And I, I wouldn't say we did it from the get-go, but we did do it pretty early. Um, we started with just the BYOC product because to me, it's like the most differentiated product. Um, like the fact that you can just get something that runs completely in your op- in your environment, but yeah. is so simple that like it's as if you have a SaaS, but you don't. Like your data yeah. never leaves your cloud account. You have complete data sovereignty. It's all in your bucket. Um, all the consensus is handled remotely. You don't have to think about that. You don't pay for any interzone networking fees, and it can actually be five times cheaper than running open source Kafka in your own environment. To me, that's like a very, very, very differentiated and clear product. And whereas the serverless product is like once the Kafka protocol is hosted by somebody else, the differentiation becomes less obvious. You're differentiating on other things. Scale to zero, it's price. It's not as clear, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And so we didn't start with a fully hosted serverless product, but the, the thing we kind of kept running into was that, you know, our pitch is that it's the easiest way to do Kafka. It's the easiest way to do streaming. Yeah. And like yeah. deploy, even just deploying some stateless containers into your environment, maybe it's you need to trivial. talk to your boss, you got to figure out yeah. the chart, you got to do some Terraform. Yeah. Whereas like click a button, you know, Kafka is a URL, just get some credentials. That's easy. <laughs> It just helps us engage with smaller customers. We've gotten a ton mm-hmm. of feedback from people where it just doesn't make sense for them to deploy the containers themselves, but they use our serverless product in production and they're really happy with it. Um, yeah. I think we've differentiated the product enough with the scale to zero and the way the pricing works. But it, it's really just about, I think, like kind of that mission of making it as simple and easy as possible. Uh, we had to, I think, have that offering. And, and there's a really nice story, right? Which is like, if you're small scale where the pricing and the networking fees don't matter, you can get these serverless clusters. They scale to zero when you're not using them. Even if you do yeah. encounter some decent traction and you take off, the pricing's still pretty reasonable. Um, right. And then when you're ready, if you mature as an organization, you can always move to BYOC and and run your own yeah. agents. Yeah. So let's, let's actually talk about the the pricing part of Warstream, uh, just because that is also a core focus of uh, the, the value prop, right? So how do you think about pricing for uh, serverless versus BYOC? Um, where have you put in more energy? Uh, and it doesn't have to be exact price points. Like, obviously, those will evolve over time as the product evolves. But uh, yeah, yeah. like, how, how did you think about that? Yeah, so the thing we knew when we started this was we wanted to have very predictable and transparent and what we considered, you know, fair pricing. Fair is probably not the right word, 
principled is probably a better word. Mm. Um, but like, we did not want to be the, or name any names, okay? But we did not want to be the like really expensive, bougie vendor that only the people who have lots of money to burn can afford to use. Basically, we want right. we wanted to be the AWS in this space. We wanted to be like, you know, you're paying money for it because it's a good product and people need to stay in business. But it is um, a core primitive that you can scale your business on. And it's not like, yeah. oh, if I have really high scale, I have to go back to self-hosting, right? The way we thought about it, we also like, I hate when things are priced like per core or per okay. per node or something. I, I hate that stuff because it's like, especially for infrastructure, because I'm like, you're writing the software. It's your job to make it fast. Why are you charging me <laughs> because your software is slow? Like, that's yeah, yeah. dumb, you know? Uh, we should yeah. both be incentivized to make the software fast, right? Yeah. Uh, and scalable. Um, especially with our architecture where it's stateless, you know, I tell people all the time, you can have these nodes only handle writes and these nodes only handle reads and these nodes do background jobs. And now you have full isolation between your writers and readers. And like, yeah. that sounds scammy if I'm also telling you, but I'm going to charge you three times as much to do that, right? <laughs> um, you shouldn't have to pay three times as much to do that. Um, yeah. And so what we settled on was a usage-based pricing model um, where um, everything's metered. And for the BYC product, it's only on three dimensions. It's like, mm-hmm. it just if you have a cluster and it's doing stuff, that's $100 a month. You know, it's okay metered in 15 minute increments, but just some overhead for small clusters because of how our metadata store works. And then we just charge you for how much data you write and how much data you store. Um, And the kind of principled approach I took at the time was like, I estimated how much it costs to run a self-hosted Apache Kafka cluster at a certain scale. And that's where our pricing started basically. Um, And I'm like, you're getting a much better product and it's the exact same price. But then as you like abuse it and use it at scale, you know the price yeah. the the price tiers super aggressively and in public right you don't have to go argue with a sales guy for two years <laughs> to to get the price to go down it's like you can look at it project if i'm a successful company and this use case grows here's how much yeah. it's going to cost uh yeah. and that's public and on our website um and to me that's like if you're doing core infrastructure you're trying to sell to infrastructure engineers it's it's got to yeah. be like that right that's how aws does its pricing i mean aws doesn't have super public tiers so but close right yeah um yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the fact that, you know, in Warpstream, I think regardless of the architecture, right, Warpstream, uh, your infrastructure, your metadata store in particular, I think, is in the critical path of any read and write request, right? Uh, That's a lot of responsibility. And I'm wondering, especially, again, for something so core to someone else's technical stack, um, how, how are you navigating that problem? Is that an objection you have? Is that something where people run stress tests and you can kind of just prove out reliability? How do, how do you maybe on a technical standpoint, think about reliability and then from a kind of go to market sales standpoint, think about the, the talk track around it? Yeah, the it's a really good question. And I think it's I don't know if that's like a thing will ever there's no like checkbox answer. It's kind of just like something yeah. that has to be part of our core philosophy, part of our core engineering culture. And we just have to kind of like live and breathe for the rest of the company's life, I think. From a technical perspective, you know, I've worked on tons of systems like this. Datadog was really critical. I mean, I, I still remember when, um, you know, there were times when Datadog incidents or things went down, you would be surprised at the things in the world that have to turn off because they <laughs> don't have visibility. Um, yeah. and, and that was a lot of pressure that Datadog wore. Same at Uber, right? People get stranded in the middle of nowhere. You know, you think you're just running some back end, but there's, there's someone drunk two in the morning 
maybe in an unsafe yeah. area, you know, they can't get a ride home or, or, or whatever. Um, and so that's been, I think, baked into the company culture very early on from like a pure technical perspective of how we do it. Um, you know, there's the obvious stuff about relying on really scalable rock solid primitives, having good rate limiting in place, um, structuring everything so that there's isolation between tenants. Um, we're really big fans of the cellular architecture. Um, mm. Datadog is a heavily, heavily cellular based architecture. Um, mm. Warpstream is, and will be the same, which is basically, you know, you have these cells and a cell is like a copy paste of your entire infrastructure stack and a cell may yeah. be multi-tenant and there's a bunch of constraints within that cell to prevent anyone from using too many of the resources. Um, but on top of that, like cellular boundaries are hard boundaries and no matter what someone does in one cell, it can never impact another cell. Um, mm -hmm. That's really, mm -hmm. really, really helpful because it just reduces blast radiuses when things do inevitably go wrong. Um, mm -hmm. And so all, all of those things, um, there's also like for kind of like bigger workloads, we have stuff like single tenant control plane cells. So, mm -hmm. you know, if the workload's big enough or the customer is willing to pay for it, basically, we can give you essentially a completely isolated stack. Um, and yeah. that sounds crazy, but because of the architecture of the product, it's not really, you add one more thing to an array and a Terraform provider, and it's not like there's <laughs> more nodes that we have to no rotate or anything. It it mostly manages itself. And then also just because of the, the simplicity of the control plane at even really, really, really mega scale, uh, it's tenable for customers to self-host the control plane. I, it's not what I generally recommend to people because it's like you're probably not going to be nearly as good at operating it as us, uh, but there are certain environments, things need to be air-gapped, whatever it is, um, yeah. where that makes sense. And so it's it's something we think about all the time. I mean, you know, the, a huge, probably more than half of all our engineering resources go into basically resource constraints, limits, rate limiting, all the type yeah. of stuff yeah. there. On the go-to-market side, um, I think a lot of it is just about part of it is having good answers, right? Like a lot of times when I mm -hmm. talk to people, they're like, okay, so how does the control plane work? And, you know, if the answer is like, oh, we like have these custom raft nodes that we run with like <laughs> local disks and like I've got this guy and he's really smart, that's not a super satisfying answer. Uh, but when I tell people all your everything is like we run four replicas per tenant of the control plane. And the only dependencies we take are on that the network in AWS needs to work and object storage in DynamoDB need to be up. And even if object storage yeah. is down, we can keep running for a while, but DynamoDB needs to be up. They're usually very happy. Um, a lot yeah, of these yeah. people, like, they're running in AWS. They know how rock solid that infrastructure is. They know that they're yeah. not going to run anything more reliably than AWS, and, and that's a satisfying answer. Sometimes it goes a little bit... Um, Beyond that, and I think a lot of it too is I think about your your brand and reputation as a company too. Do people trust you? Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot of companies that no one thinks twice about putting all their company infrastructure in AWS because AWS has a really good brand. They take incidents yeah. seriously. Well, AWS is an extremely multi-tenant environment, but you know that they right. they have like they've written their own hypervisors and they've done they've done everything they possibly could to make it good and scale. Yeah. And that that just comes with time and brand and reputation. Um, yeah. And I think that's yeah. something I you know we talk about a lot in the team too is that you know the way we put ourselves out there in the world needs to, you know, I don't want to be like Reflect really that. serious, but we need to be professional and we need to, yeah. people need to trust us and we need to do everything as responsibly and securely as we can. Um, yeah. And not to kind of get up caught up in stuff that can happen on the internet when people aren't being professional yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, maybe on a slightly less serious note, last thing I'll ask, uh, what are you most excited about? Um, it could be a technical problem you all are working on a new feature rollout. What's coming next? Where are you putting 
uh, at least a lot of the positive energy uh, yeah. at Warpstream. Dude, we got so much good stuff coming out. Um, we're sponsoring Kafka Summit in London, March 20th. Um, we're about to roll out. Uh, I just launched it actually, like infinite retention uh, to all customers. Oh, nice. So you can do that now. Um, we're going to roll out full support for compacted topics in Kafka so you can use us as a KV store. Um, <laughs> yeah. if that's what your heart desires. Um, our implementation of compacted topics is actually really good. I'm really excited about it. We put a lot of um, engineering effort into making it good. Uh, it's not like a half-baked early release. Um, so that, I'm really excited about that because that opens up a whole new world of the Kafka ecosystem that can use us. Yeah. Our serverless product is still kind of in alpha, but we've started getting a couple people in production. Uh, I'm looking forward to maturing that. The BYOC product is going to go GA um, in March. I'm really excited about that too. Um, nice. And I think kind of Q2, Q3, we're going to start looking a little bit beyond the Kafka protocol. Um, and I think that'll be really cool. Uh, stuff like server-side partitioning, uh, native yeah. iceberg integrations, um, that type of stuff. Stuff that really like allows you to do new things that you just can't really do yeah. uh, with traditional yeah. Kafka today instead of just being a cheaper, easier to run mousetrap. Um, so we got a lot of really cool stuff coming down the pipe. Awesome. Well, that's very exciting. And uh, it was great, great having you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, man. This was great.